Well, can somebody please tell me what was life like before mobile phones? What was it like before you could just call anyone up at any time? Well, you might be like me and have absolutely no clue. But if you were around back then, what was it like? What would you miss by going back? I mean, surely things are better now than what they were before. Mobile phones are great. Oh, they're so handy and so much has changed. The thought of going back to life before is quite terrifying, to be honest. But why imagine when you can experience it today? If you live in Jamboree, then a few weeks ago, you would have traveled back in time with me to the land before mobile phones when the fateful blackout attacked. A few weeks ago, we had the blackout of a lifetime at Jamboree, and this one went forever, like seriously. No power, no signal for almost two whole days. Oh, it was the absolute worst, like I'm not going to lie. And it's probably as close as I will ever get to life before mobile phones. And let me tell you one thing. It absolutely sucked. I did not enjoy it one bit. I couldn't message any of my mates. I couldn't watch YouTube. That's a killer. And I couldn't even ring up the pizza shop to order delivery and the microwave didn't work. It was just a disaster. These were dark times. And it made me realise that going back to pre-mobile phones before this new age of communication that has dawned, it wouldn't be fun at all. You just wouldn't think about going back. Now today, we're going to look at a part of the Bible that was written to a group of people who were tempted to go back. See, the communication game, it changed for them too. A new age of communication had dawned. It was a way bigger breakthrough than mobile phones, Zoom and the internet combined. And this group of people, they were called the Hebrews. And oh boy, did their communication system get an upgrade. And I'm not talking about mobile phones, honestly. This was a bigger leap than that, way bigger. And it changed the game forever. That leap was Jesus. See, Jesus ushered in a new age of communication from God that had never been seen before. But these Hebrews, mm, they weren't entirely satisfied that the new way was better. They weren't satisfied with direct communication from God by his own son. They had an upgrade that was way better than mobile, but they were tempted to drift back to the past. The Hebrews were drifting to the past. They were going back to landline, back to the old age. To the Hebrews, there were people that were converted out of Judaism in the first century. And because of that, they faced significant pressure and they were tempted to drift and slip back into safe and comfortable Judaism. And we see this at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, which we read earlier tonight in the Bible readings. How cool is that, that it all just links up? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. 
they were tempted to drift back, to neglect what they had heard. And this was the reason that this letter to the Hebrews was written. It was written to encourage them in their faith and to establish them firmly in the truth. But we know all that Old Testament Jewish stuff. It's old news. We live 2,000 years after Jesus. We don't have those same problems. I'm not tempted to drift back into Judaism. So Christians just don't drift at all today, do they? We don't have those problems. That was just something that earlier Christians struggled with, drifting, right? See, I don't think that's the case. Christians still drift today. And in fact, I think we've been particularly at risk of drifting over the last few months. It's easier to miss church now than ever before and to skip out on meeting up together. And something really important we need to realise is that it's easy to drift. It's really easy. Most of the time, people don't walk away from Jesus overnight. For some people, it can be quite sudden. But for most others, it's often a slow and quiet drift. Now us and the Hebrews, well, we have different problems. See, we can't just copy and paste their drifting for our own. It just doesn't work. They were first century Jews and we are 21st century Gentiles. They were tempted to drift back into safe, comfortable Judaism, which the letter to the Hebrews thoroughly addresses. It's awesome. But we, we drift for all sorts of different reasons that this letter falls completely silent on. But our solution to drifting, I think our solution is the same. So what's the solution for the Hebrews? What does the writer say to anchor them steadfast in their faith? He shows them that Jesus is better. This is what the author does. He shows them who Jesus is. And the letter to the Hebrews, it actually gives us an amazing pastoral insight into how we can encourage those who are drifting. Show them the depth and the wonders in the person of Jesus. If you know someone who is struggling, take them to Jesus. And if you are struggling, as I know I have, then come with me now and let's look at Jesus. It is such a wonderful place to have clarity and depth to our understanding of who God's Son is. So let me read the first three verses of the marvellous opening to the letter of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now, in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honour at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Now before we dive into these three verses, and believe me we will, there's so much good stuff in here. I must alter quickly, we're all going to take one step back. 
Because what the author does in the first three verses is really important for the entire book of Hebrews. What he does is he gives us a little, gives us a little snapshot of the entire book. And what does he show us in these first few verses? Well, we're going to see that Jesus is supreme. That's the big idea in Hebrews and throughout the rest of the entire letter. It goes on to expel this in exhaustive detail. And what these Jewish Christians end up seeing is that time and time again, against anyone or anything, Jesus, well, he comes out on top. And we've already touched on one of the ways that he does this. He ushered in a new age of communication. Have a look in your Bible starting at verse 1. Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Now notice there are two halves here, or two time periods. We have long ago in the past what God did, and in these final days what God has done. And in both these times, what do we see God do? Well, we see that God spoke, didn't he? Our God is a speaking God. God has made himself known to us in ways we can understand. And how good it is that's the case. But there's a key difference that the writer of the Hebrews wants to point out. It's the way that God spoke. Well, how did God speak in the past? Let's have a look in verse 1. See, God used to speak... In many times and many ways, he spoke to our ancestors, which were the Hebrews' ancestors, which would have been God's people in the Old Testament. And God's mechanism of speech to them, well, it was through the prophets. In the Old Testament, we see that God spoke by visions, dreams, voices, a burning bush, a pillar of fire, and even a donkey. In the Old Testament, God spoke in bits and pieces, many times, many ways, a little here, a little there. But now we see a stark contrast. In these last days, well, God speaks to us in a different way. It's not in bits and pieces with a little here, a little there. It is full and complete. And that is because now God has spoken by his Son. Verse 1, it's such an amazing contrast, and that's primarily for two reasons. Firstly, because of the 14th letter of the alphabet, the letter N. Did you notice the letter N on the end of the word spoken? It helps show us that in these last days, there's a finality to how God has spoken. The message, the speech, the revelation, it is finished. It has been spoken Period. is done. There is no continuing revelation or message that we need to hear. The scriptures that we have before us are sufficient. We have everything we need to know. And the second contrast we see, it was who God spoke by. It's not just another prophet, but his son. For our book of the month in September, we read through Gentle and Lowly. See if you follow me on this uh, parallel here. Let me know if it works or not. Um, Us reading Gentle and Lowly together is sort of like God speaking through the prophets. 
It's understandable, it's clear, and it's really good stuff. Highly recommend giving it a read. But imagine, instead of reading the book, you hear a knock on the door one day. Wonder who that could be. And would you not believe it? But Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Lowly, is on your doorstep. What are the chances of that? You invite him in and you tell him, mate, I was thinking of reading your book. Next thing you know, you guys hit it off for hours and talk all about the heart of God. Now, the content would be the same whether you read the book or spoke to Dane in person, but chatting with Dane Orland himself, oh, it just runs laps around his book no matter how good it is. See, God speaks in a different way now. His message is finished and it has been spoken by his own son. Friends, in Jesus we have the complete and full message of God. Jesus is the supreme revelation from God. But we read on to see that the supremacy of God's son doesn't stop there. Have a look with me now at the son's greatness and supremacy when it comes to creation. Let's have a look, starting halfway through verse 2. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. And have a look at the middle of verse 3 with me quickly. Starting from he sustains, he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Here we see three amazing truths about God's Son. God promised everything to him as an inheritance. Through the Son, God created the universe, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Wow, that is a lot to take in. I reckon I could just get lost spending time on these profound truths. It is really magnificent in its scope and scale when you start to think about it. And from these we see that Jesus, well, he's supreme over all creation too. Let's have a look at the first truth. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. Some of you might have an inheritance lined up. It could be money, it could be a house, so that when the time comes, you will become that possession's rightful owner. Well, it turns out you're not the only one with an inheritance. Jesus has one too. Now, what does he have lined up for him? Well, let's have a look. What does Jesus inherit? It just says... No, everything. Now, when this verse says everything, it means everything. Jesus is the rightful owner of it all. God has given it all to him. Every person, plant, animal, rock, star, galaxy, everything created belongs to and is made for the sun. This is incredibly countercultural stuff right here. I don't know if we often think that we're made for Jesus, that he actually owns us. Our culture is incredibly focused on the individual. It's all about my wants, my needs, gimme, gimme, gimme. But Jesus, he just flips that all on its head. Turns out you're not the center of the universe and you weren't made for yourself. We were made for Jesus. And right after that we see and through the sun, God created the universe. I already have enough trouble thinking about how God 
spoke creation into existence, let alone now trying to wrap my head around how he did it all through the sun. I mean, right here you can just see the pre-existence, the authority and the power of Jesus by his role in creation alone. God created through Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, finally we see that not only was everything made for Jesus and by Jesus, but we read on to see that he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When I was at uni, I studied earth and environmental science. And over three whole years, I caught by a tiny glimpse into the complexities of our world. The way God created our climate, oceans, and land to exist in this incredibly complex interplay of processes, like, it just blows your mind. You only scratch the surface after doing a degree in the stuff. It is all so amazingly complex in its marvelous details. But what God doesn't do right is He doesn't get a clock, wind up everything in creation, click, 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 I'm gonna put that on the shelf and just let it all play out. That's not what he does at all. God keeps the clock turning in all its intricate, tiny details, things that we don't even know about. He doesn't just set the laws that govern our reality in place and stand behind them. We see here that our world is continually sustained by Jesus. Something that I found really interesting is thinking through this as someone who studied science. The only reason that science actually works is because the way Jesus sustains everything is so patterned and consistent that you can discern the pattern and call it a law. It's, it's incredible stuff. In the human body, it needs a lot of sustaining. And I still can't believe that since I was born, fun fact, my heart, it's never skipped a beat. Not even once. And you know who sustained every single beat. It was Jesus by the mighty power of his command. Now I want to come back to the start of verse 3 again. We sort of skipped over it before. So let's come back, take a look with me here at what it says about God's Son. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. From this, we see that Jesus is supreme in relation to God himself. The author wants to point us in this direction with two ideas that are worth thinking about. The first is about the way the sun's rays relate to the sun as they shine out from the source. And the second idea is that of the way a stamp relates to the thing being stamped. The first idea is that of God being the sun, the one in the sky that is, and Jesus being the rays that shine out from the source. The sun radiates God's own glory. Jesus, see, he's the brilliant rays that shine out from God. But you see, he's also the impression or imprint stamped by the Father. See, our NLT puts it as, expresses the very character of God. 
And the ESV helpfully translates the second half of this verse as, and the, and the exact imprint of his nature. It's the same idea in essence, but you see that stamp idea coming through in the ESV there. See, God the Father has stamped his very character, the exact imprint of his nature. He dipped the stamp down into big red gooey wax, pulled it up, stamp, and the imprint that was left. The perfect imprint we see was Jesus. Christ, see, he's the visible image of the invisible God. And Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. There's a certain level of mystery here that is quite difficult to comprehend. But what we do know is that the way that Jesus and the Father relate to each other is truly wondrous. And it completely lends itself to showcase Jesus' supremacy in relation to God himself. This man, he wasn't just another prophet, was he? We see that Jesus, he's fully man and fully God. But friends, there's still more wonderful things to come. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honour at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. Now, it's worth quickly noting that God doesn't actually have a physical right hand. God is spirit, and he doesn't have a body except in the incarnation of the Son, Jesus. He doesn't have a right or left hand, and he doesn't sit on a throne in the literal sense. See, what this does, it's an image we use from our human experiences to give some sense to God. And from our human experience, when you have a king, they do sit on thrones. They do have right and left hands. And to not stand, but to be someone who sits with the king, it expresses equality and peace with the ruler. And to be at his right hand is to be in his place of honour. And this language is used to give some sense to the honour and equality we see the Son has with God, who, we read from this verse, cleansed us from our sins. Jesus is God's supreme answer to sin. And why is that the case? Well, it's because sin, well, it's the greatest problem in the world. The holy justice of God means judgment for sinners. And what is sin exactly? Sin is rebellion against God. It's the attitude that we have towards God in which we fail. We absolutely fail to give him the thanks and the honor that he is due. And this hostility we have towards God, whether passive or active, leads to the holy God judging as he must. There is no hope for humanity before a holy God. But that same God, well, he sends his son to make purification for sins so we can be clean from them, that our relationship might be repaired. And Jesus cleansed us. How? By his death on the cross. He died in the place of sinners as a substitute which is something that the letter to the Hebrews goes on to address in lots of detail. It unpacks how the Old Testament system 
anticipated the need for purification for sins with the sacrificial system. There were priests and sacrifices that used to happen every single day to remind people that if a sinner was to come in the presence of a holy God, it costs a life because of sin. So the blood of an animal was sacrificed to show you just can't casually strut into the presence of a holy God. A price must be paid. But the blood of an animal can't ultimately fix the problem of sin. Sin is just too serious and the glory of God is far too great. It just can't cover it. Animal blood won't ultimately do the trick. It's like trying to use a bucket to stop a flood. It's like trying to use a band-aid to stop the bleeding from a shark bite. It's no match. But when the Son of God comes, the value of his death is in the infinite worth of his person. The one who steps into our place is not just an animal. We read here, He's the heir of all things, by which the world was made and is sustained. He is the radiance of the glory of God and expresses his very character. When that man, when he comes and pays in blood, it's enough to cover the sins of the entire world. His death is sufficient to cover any sin you may have committed. So much so that after he was raised... He sat down, job done, absolutely finished and complete. And friends, what good news that is, that if you trust in Jesus as your Lord, your sins are so far removed from you as the east is from the west. You're washed white as snow. Jesus' great work, it is finished. Now Hebrews, it continues on. It doesn't stop here, which is great. And it goes on to talk about how Jesus is supreme compared to angels and many other things that are particularly relevant to the first century recipients of the letter, the Hebrews. But you can see from just these few verses how truly supreme Jesus is, how much better he is than anything. And for these Jewish Christians, it would have been crazy to drift away from Christ Crazier than wanting to go back to life before mobile phones. Where else could they receive the final, complete, and full revelation from God? Who else were they made for, by, and are sustained? Who else exists in such a close relationship with God the Father, like Jesus does? For these Jews, turning back to the Old Testament when you have Christ, it just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But even though that is the case, even though Jesus is far better, is absolutely, undeniably supreme, they were still tempted to drift. I once heard a story of a, a local guy. He was down at Jones's Beach, Palmer Downs, and it was a pretty calm day. Surf wasn't too big. He was just sitting at the back on an inflatable lilo. Sun was shining. He was relaxing. And it was so comfortable that he ended up falling completely asleep. 
and as he slept, he started to drift. The combination of the big inflatable, the current and the wind all meant that he started to be pulled out further and further away from the beach. He drifted out past the breakers and he actually ended up drifting so far that he went out past the headland. I would actually die if that happened to me, I think. That is just terrifying. He then swam back into shore and he's alive to tell us the story today. But drifting is dangerous. It really is. And we're still at risk of it today. Have you been enjoying a long nap on the lilo? Or maybe you're just out past the breakers, just dozing off. Or maybe you might be out past the headland. Wherever you are, this might be your chance to wake up. See, we drift for different reasons than the Hebrews, but we have one thing in common. We both think there's something better than Jesus. Six days a week, we hear sermons from the world telling us, oh, this, all that. It's the best thing. It's worth all your money, attention, time, and energy. This goal, this passion, this purpose, this lifestyle, it's so good. Give up everything. Follow it. But I want us to stop and let's imagine for a minute that they're right. There's actually something that's better than Jesus out there. Well, what would it be? How would we shape our lives around it? How much would it control us, what we do? And how excited would we be to tell our friends and family and neighbours all about it? But this thing, whatever it may be, how would it give us our most important needs? How would it reveal God's complete and full message for humanity? How would it give and sustain our very lives? How would it fix the greatest problem of all? Sin. See, it wouldn't do any of those things, would it? And it wouldn't come even close because Jesus is undeniably supreme in every way that matters. Do you really think Jesus is supreme? Or just good? Is he second rate to something else that you have going on in your life right now? Does your day-to-day life reflect the awesome realities that we've just seen are at hand tonight? Are you absolutely captured by the Christ that is presented before us tonight? Because if you are, it's really hard to drift. See, Jesus, he's worth everything we have. There's nothing more worth your time, energy, money and attention than the Supreme Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us now.